Great to see all of you. Welcome to our service. Great to welcome all you folks joining us online, wherever you might be. It's good to be back with you after being gone for a week. Sandy and I were in Tampa last week um, for a couple of days of fun, but I was down there also to meet with um, a young man who uh, used to be on our staff here at church. His name is Bruce Humphrey. I think we have a picture of uh, Bruce and his wife Bethany and Sandy and I up there that will come up here in a minute. But uh, he uh, leads his own church. He was a youth pastor here for us for about five years, and he leads his own church down in the Tampa area now uh, called Common Ground Christian Church. And so we went down to meet with them and kind of encourage and coach them a little bit. And then uh, I preached at his church last Sunday, and it was kind of a cool thing because I only preached one time. I can't remember the last time that happened. I only preached one time on that Sunday morning. But it's a, it's a wonderful little church. It's a very multiracial. It's in a, a real urban area, a low-income area, and he's doing a great job reaching people. But uh, we missed being here with you, and I brought back some warm weather with you, so you're welcome. I brought back some warm weather with me, rather, so you're welcome. Anyway, um, I was kind of jealous uh, that Andrew got to preach that passage last week from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 uh, on Jesus' wilderness temptation because that's such a great passage of Scripture to teach us about the reality of temptation and teach us about how to overcome temptation. Definitely, uh, when you think about the Gospel of Matthew, the 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, that's definitely, that passage is one of the highlights in the entire Gospel. Uh, not too many people would look at the text that we're going to look at this morning and say that it's a highlight, but uh, that would be a mistake because this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at together this morning, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already done that. This passage of Scripture, when you look at it in the, at first glance, it seems like it's just a transitional passage that gets us from the end of Jesus' wilderness temptation to the beginning of His ministry, but there's much, much more to it than that. It's a significant passage of Jesus, or passage of Scripture telling us the story of Jesus, and I want to talk to you about its significance this morning. So if you got your Bible ready, let's not waste any more time. Stand together with me wherever you are in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. And I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 as we continue our Let's Talk About Jesus study. Here we go. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, by the way, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali by the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. All right, there you go. That's it. You can be seated. We pray God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. What I want to do in our time together this morning is I want to just give you three reasons why this passage of Scripture, again, that honestly just seems like nothing more than a transitional passage, I want to give you three reasons why this passage of Scripture reveals a powerful and a significant part of Jesus' life. And I'm going to do it with, a, with a, not a very creative outline. We're just going to talk about three things. The first thing we want to talk about is what we'll just call the context. We need to understand the context of this passage of Scripture. And here's why I say that. When you first read this passage of Scripture, uh, you would be tempted, as I said a moment ago, to believe that it just transitions us from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 and the wilderness temptation to Matthew 
4, verses 12 through 17 and following, which tells us about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it seems like they just happen, they just flow from one to the next. But that's not true. That's not accurate. The truth is, when you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the perspective of putting all four of them side by side, what we might call a harmony of the Gospels. When I was in college many, 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 many years ago, I had a class called a Harmony of the Gospels, okay? So we understood how they all fit together in the timeline of Jesus' life. And when you put the Gospels side by side by side by side, what you really find out is that between Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11 and Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, there's about a year that goes by. There's about a period of a year that goes by between those two verses. Now, Matthew obviously doesn't record for us the events of Jesus' life during that year. But I want you to listen to me close. That shouldn't trouble us because while the Gospels work together to give us the story of Jesus, we need to understand that each one of the Gospels is unique in that they present a different picture of Jesus, each one of them. Don't misunderstand that. They all show Jesus as the Son of God. They all show us that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin. Each one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But at the same time, each one of them, because of the way they're written, give us a different view or a different perspective of who Jesus is. For example, and I told you this when we introduced this study a few weeks ago, the Gospel of Matthew focuses on presenting Jesus as a Messiah and a King. The Gospel of Mark focuses on presenting Jesus as a servant The Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as man, as the Son of Man. And the Gospel of John, my favorite, presents Jesus as God. It gives us this image or this picture, this reality of Jesus being God in human flesh. But regardless of whether Jesus is presented as king or servant or man or God, each one of the gospel writers had the same common goal. They wanted their readers to know who Jesus was, and they wanted their readers to believe in Jesus. Now... Getting back to our text, okay, and the end of Matthew chapter 4, 11, and the beginning of Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. I imagine that the reason why Matthew's gospel does not record for us the events of that year that took place in Jesus' life between those two verses is because it just didn't relate to his presentation of Jesus as the Messiah and the King. But that year was significant nonetheless, and John gives us the reality of that year. In fact, if you want to know what happened in Jesus' life during that year that seems to be missing in Matthew's gospel, then write this down in your notes. This is not going to appear on the screen, but write this down in your notes. Sometime today or sometime this week, you go back and you read John chapter 1, verse 19, through John chapter 4 and verse 42, and you'll see what was going on in Jesus' life during that year that we're not, we don't have recorded in Matthew's gospel. If I were going to try to summarize uh, what was happening, give you a brief overview, then what we would see is that John the Baptist continues to preach, John the Baptist continues his ministry, and Jesus begins his ministry. There was some overlap between their two ministries. There was a connection, but ultimately, and listen to me close, because this was the 
divine plan of God, ultimately, because this was the divine plan of God along the way, John the Baptist's ministry began to phase out, and Jesus' ministry began to grow. And it's clear that John the Baptist didn't have a problem with this. It was clear that John the Baptist understood that this is the way it was supposed to be according to the will of God, because this is what he says in John chapter 3 and verse 30 when he's talking about Jesus. You see it up there on the screen. At one point, John the Baptist just literally says about Jesus, he must, he must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater, and I must become less. And so John the Baptist's ministry began to phase out, and Jesus' ministry began to grow because that was the plan of God. Ultimately, Jesus' ministry took center stage. Now, Matthew doesn't record the events surrounding that, but he does acknowledge John, and I want you to understand the context as we begin looking at this passage. All right, the second thing we're going to talk about is this. Once we've established the context, I want to talk to you about the light. And I want you to notice in your handout that the word light is capitalized. Because when I say I want to talk about the light, I want to talk about Jesus in this passage of Scripture. Jesus, who is the light of the world. Matthew 4, 12 begins with these words. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Now, again, I want you to look up here and listen. That might seem like an insignificant transitional statement, but that is really a powerful and significant verse or statement in the story of the life of Jesus. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this little part of the text today because we're going to talk about John the Baptist on two different occasions as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to have two messages that are devoted completely to John the Baptist. We're going to talk about him when we get to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to talk about him again when we get to Matthew chapter 14. But let me just say this, John the Baptist got thrown into prison because how many of you know John the Baptist was a fiery preacher? He was an in-your-face no fooling around, fiery preacher. Now, we saw that a couple of weeks ago when I preached through Matthew chapter 3, and we saw the story about how John the Baptist was in the Judean desert, and he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, and he was baptizing, remember, thousands of people. Uh, Bible scholars estimate that he baptized thousands of people during that time in his ministry. They came all from all over the area, all over that geographical area to John to hear his message and to be baptized. And if you remember, a part of that tells us that there was a point when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to the desert to see what was going on. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would have been the absolute most religious people that you could have pointed to. I mean, they would have been the elite when it comes to being religious. And how did John the Baptist greet them? He looked at them and said, you brood of vipers. In other words, he said, you're a bunch of snakes. Now, we have extensive training for our greeters here at church every week. And we try really hard for them to be a little bit nicer than that. But see, John the Baptist, he, is, and he didn't have time to fool around with anybody. He said, you brood of vipers, he said, you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so he just called them out. Man, that's the way he was. Well, he didn't reserve that kind of approach just to religious leaders. And what happened was there was a time when John the Baptist confronted a man named Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great. There are different Herods that we read about in the Scriptures. Herod the Great was the Herod when Jesus was born. This is later now. This is Herod Antipas. And he got in his face and confronted him about his sin, specifically the sin of taking his half-brother's wife to be his own, who, by the way, just happened to also be his niece. That was the reality of the situation. Well, John the Baptist, he could not let that kind of a thing go. 
he, he could not let that kind of a thing go. And so he got right up in Herod Antipas' face and he confronted him about it. As a result, he was thrown into prison. And Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12 says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. It was the event that caused Jesus to return to Galilee. Return to Galilee because Galilee is where Jesus was from. It was where he was raised, where he grew up. Now, Jesus didn't do this because he was afraid. He didn't do this because he was afraid something similar would happen to him. Jesus did this ultimately because this was the divine will of God for his life. This was a part of God's divine plan for Jesus' life, and it had been that way for a long, long time. We see that in verses 13 through 16. Look back at those verses. Look down there, Matthew 4. And let's just remind ourselves. So after he heard about John being put in prison, he returned to Galilee. It says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He did this to fulfill the word of God, the prophecy of God. Now, this prophecy came from Isaiah, and it was made in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This is where this prophecy came from. What we, what we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, has its origin in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It doesn't read exactly the same, but it's very similar. Let me just read it to you from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, this is the prophet writing. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan, and here are those words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light, a light, that's what we're talking about now in the message, a light has dawned. Now, I want you to understand the significance of this prophecy about Jesus, the prophecy he fulfills by returning to Galilee. But to do that, I'm going to have to talk to you for a few minutes about some Old Testament history. And uh, I'm going to try to, to, to make it simple. I'm going to try not to overwhelm you with it, but we're going to need to talk for a few minutes about some Old Testament history. When Isaiah, the prophet, wrote those words, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, this prophecy about Jesus, about a light, about a light that is dawned, he was ministering in the land of Israel during a time when there was a king named King Ahaz. Ahaz, not King Ahab that we'd be more familiar with, uh, but King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a wicked, evil man. He was, he was a man whose heart was rotten through and through. He wasn't a man who was just a long way from God. He was a man who was in opposition to God. Let me just give you one example of the reality of that. That's all that I have time for today. Ahaz was the king who introduced the worship of a false god named Molech or Moloch into the land of Israel. Now, Molech was the savage god of a people known as the Ammonites, Ammonites, and the worship of Molech involved bizarre rituals. It involved, for example, bizarre sexual rituals, but even worse than that, the most heinous part of the worship of this false god Moloch involved the sacrifice of infants, the sacrifice of children, of babies thrown into the fire. They literally called it 
passing through the fire. And in this practice, little children, little babies, infants were literally thrown into the fire by their parents as a way to ensure a fruitful and a blessed life. It was an awful and a horrific kind of pagan practice that was just one part of the deep, listen to me, the deep, deep level of darkness that shrouded the people of Israel during that time and shrouded the land of Israel during that time. And Isaiah the prophet, trying to minister to those people in the midst of that darkness, was just overwhelmed with frustration. You see that. If you go to Isaiah chapter 8, now remember the passage uh, that we see in our text, Matthew 4, 12 through 17, comes from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. That's where the prophecy about the light shows up. But if you back up from that just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, and you read through the end of the chapter, which is just four verses, you see the frustration that Isaiah the prophet dealt with because of the deep level of darkness among the people and the deep level of darkness that shrouded the land of Israel at the time. I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm going to do it in a kind of an unusual way. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to put it on the screen from a, tra- uh, from a paraphrase of the Bible called the message. This is how it reads. This is Isaiah speaking. When people tell you, try out the fortune tellers, consult the spiritualists. Why not tap into the spirit world? Get in touch with the dead. Tell them, no, we're going to study the scriptures. People who try the other ways get nowhere, a dead end. Frustrated and famished, they try one thing after another. When nothing works out, they get angry, cursing first this God and then that one, looking this way and that, up, down, and sideways, and seeing nothing, a blank wall, an empty hole. And then he says, they end up in the dark. Remember, we're talking about the light. And people end up in the dark, he says, with nothing. That's Isaiah talking about the deep level of frustration of trying to minister and be God's man, God's spokesman, deliver God's message to the people when they're living in this level of darkness. They're trying spiritualists and mediums and all kinds of black magic, supernatural, evil things to try to discern the will of God rather than just listening to God all along. It's a terrible thing. I read that passage of Scripture, and I just think to myself, what, what, a, what an incredible scene of sin. What, what a dark, dark level of sin is taking place. What a pathetic scene of sin. But fortunately, listen, that's not how the passage or the story ends, because right after that, we get to that passage that we find again in our text today, Matthew chapter 4. Nevertheless, he said, nevertheless, even though there's nothing but darkness, he goes on to say, remember this, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. He said, a light has dawned. And this is Isaiah the prophet saying hundreds of years previous, this is Isaiah the prophet saying what our text in Matthew chapter 4 reveals, and this is it, Jesus, the light of the world is coming. Somebody say amen to that. Jesus, the light of the world is coming. Now, I don't want to get bogged down on this point, but I feel compelled to state the obvious. I read this passage of Scripture, and I'm just reminded that it doesn't matter how deep or how great the darkness might be in one person's life or how deep or how great the darkness might be in the life of an entire nation of people. There's no level of darkness that Jesus, the light of the world, can't overcome. 
no level of darkness. He has the power uh, to change any life. He, he's the light of the world and has the power to dawn in any level of darkness. If you know anything about Old Testament history, and it's okay if you don't today, because we're going to talk about it again, or, or we're going to talk about it for a few minutes more. If you know anything about Old Testament history today, you know that almost from the beginning of the time when God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, uh, grew into a nation, that it didn't matter what God did. It didn't matter how he blessed them. It didn't matter how many times he rescued them. It didn't matter how many times he renewed them. His, he renewed his covenant with them. It doesn't matter how many times he instructed them and tried to guide them. They just continued on and on through history in this continual cycle of rebellion and sin and disobedience to God. They just continued, no matter what God did. And it just, it just, they just, they just things just got worse and worse and worse. And shortly after the death of King Solomon, who was the third king of Israel, the nation of Israel was in such a bad place that they divided and became two separate nations. There was the northern kingdom that was also known as Israel and the southern kingdom that was known as Judah. And God continued to warn them, now these two kingdoms, he continued to warn them over and over again that if they continued to sin, if they continued to disobey, if they continued to rebel, if they continued in idolatry, for example, that they were going to be punished, they were going to be judged, and they were going to be punished. And ultimately, the day came when God said, enough. And the judgment and the punishment came. It came to both kingdoms. It came first to the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians, and then it came second to the southern kingdom of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And I want you to listen to me really close. While both judgments were harsh and devastating and severe, the judgment of the northern kingdom of Israel was far and away worse and more devastating than the judgment of the southern kingdom of Judah. Because when God allowed the Assyrians to come in and overthrow the northern kingdom, he allowed them to carry off the entire population of people, and they never, ever returned. He, they were carried off, never to return, and the land of Israel, the northern kingdom, was just completely desolate. It was laid waste and it was completely desolate. Now, many years later, when God allowed the Babylonians to, to judge and punish, to be his instruments to judge and punish the southern kingdom, the Babylonians came in and they carried off some of the population of Judah in the captivity in Babylon, but not everyone. And after 70 years of captivity, he allowed a remnant of those people who had been carried off to return and rebuild their lives. But that's not what happened in the northern kingdom of Israel. The judgment of God brought, them, brought on them as a result of their sin, as a result of their rebellion, as a result of their idolatry. Remember the worship of the false god Moloch? The, the devastation and the judgment brought on them was horrific. And God, as I said a moment ago, basically allowed the Assyrians to completely remove them from the face of the earth, leaving nothing behind. And that part of the world was so dark. It was dark because of their sin and their rebellion, their disobedience and their idolatry. And it was dark as a result of the judgment of God. But one of the most significant things about this passage of Scripture we're studying that seems like nothing more than a transitional passage, Matthew 4, 12 through 17, is that what we see here is the light of Jesus coming and shining in what was one of the darkest places of the world because do you know where Galilee is located? It's located right in the heart of where the northern kingdom was. Right in the heart of where the northern kingdom was. 
So the part of Israel, listen to this and think of it like this. The part of Israel that knew the greatest judgment is the part of Israel that would know the greatest salvation. The part of Israel that would be the most punished would be the part of Israel that would be the most blessed. The part of Israel that was the most hated would be the part of Israel that was the most loved. And when Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2 and says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He's talking about Galilee. He's talking to about the place where Jesus has come according to the divine plan of God. And friends, that just teaches us or reminds us that no one, everyone say no one, no one is excluded from the love and the mercy and the grace of God. No one. When God sent Jesus into the world, He sent Him into the world for everyone. He sent Him into literally the darkest corner of the world because God wants to save and redeem the entire world. His salvation is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've believed, what level of sin you've been involved in, Jesus has the light to overcome your darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. He says that about himself in the Gospel of John. He said, I am the light of the world. He says, anybody who believes in me will never walk in darkness. And he's the light of the world that has the power to overcome. So, so, so where are you at in your life this morning? Where you been? What have you done? What, what, what belief have you embraced at one time? What sin have you committed? What mistake have you made? What failure marks your life? It doesn't matter. Jesus is the light of the world, and he's going to overcome the darkness of your life. Let me talk to you about one last thing. Let me talk to you about the lessons. The lessons. Because as I look at this text, and this is a very practical side to this text as well, I think there's some lessons we can learn from Jesus' ministry in Galilee that all of us need to embrace. Do you know that if you're a Christian this morning that you have a ministry? You have a ministry. I don't, it's not just me who has a ministry. I'm not the only one here who just has a ministry. You have a ministry. We think about the church having a ministry, but who's the church? Everyone say, I am. We're the church. And so we have a ministry. We have a ministry that, that we are involved in collectively together as the church, but we have a ministry that we need to embrace each one of us individually as well. And Jesus gives us some practical lessons about how we need to embrace that ministry. I'm going to just, there are three of them I see here. I'm going to describe them with just three phrases. The first phrase is the words common ground. And what I mean by this is that when Jesus traveled to Galilee to do ministry, as I told you earlier, he was going to a place of great familiarity because Jesus had grown up in Galilee. So he knew the people of Galilee. He, he, he knew how they lived. He knew how they thought. Now, because Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords, he knew all people everywhere, but that was especially true of the people in Galilee, even in, even in the most in, seemingly insignificant ways. Do you, do, you know, do you remember the story of how when Jesus denied, or Peter denied knowing Jesus on the night of his uh, betrayal three different times? You remember that story? Uh, you know, the Bible tells us that when the, Jesus was arrested, the disciples ran off into the dark, darkness except Peter, who is described in the Scriptures of, as following Jesus at a distance. And as he followed Jesus at a distance, he was confronted about being an associate of Jesus. Well, one of the times that happened because there were some people who approached Peter and said, surely, this is Matthew chapter 26 and verse 73. And don't worry if you're not familiar with this because we're going to get to this passage in about three years. So you're going to know all about it. <laughs> In about three years. So in Matthew chapter 26, I'm not really kidding, in verse 73, 
somebody approached Peter in the courtyard as he was watching Jesus in a dis- at, the, at a distance and said, surely you're one of them for your accent gives you away. Now, you know, Peter grew up in Galilee just like Jesus did. So the people in that part of the country had, a, had an accent. You know, I didn't grow up in this part of the country and every now somebody will say something to me about how they can tell that I'm from, you know, the South or something like that. Now, I don't hear it myself, but other people hear it. And they had an accent, but Jesus knew that. Jesus was familiar with that, and Jesus spoke that way. That means when Jesus taught, when he preached, he didn't sound like a foreigner to these people. He sounded like one of them because he had common ground with these people. Now, here's a really practical lesson. Each one of us, as we embrace the ministry that we have, needs to make it our goal to reach out to people that we are uniquely positioned to reach because we share common ground with them. And it could be common ground based on any number of things. It could be based on our education or our profession or our hobbies or our interests. We have common ground with people because we've, we've shared the same kinds of struggles and we've gone through the same kind of losses and we've had the same kind of trials together and that uniquely equips us to reach out to people who are similar And we need to do that. The bottom line is we need to focus our attention with people that we share common ground with. You know, we have multiple. We're a very mission-minded church. Every year we have like 10 to 15 mission trips that you can go on, and many of them are international. And every year, and I think this is great. I celebrate this. Don't don't misunderstand me. But people will, will give up time and money to travel to different corners of the world to try to shine the light of Jesus in those dark corners of the world. But oftentimes we won't walk across the street to minister to somebody that we know that we may have common ground with. And so we need to learn the lesson of common ground. The second one I'll just describe with the words create hope. We just spent a lot of time talking about how Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of the world that overcomes any level of darkness. Let me just ask you a question on a real practical level. If If you found yourself at some point in your life lost in the darkness... Maybe that's been a reality. You're out. You're, everything is unfamiliar, and you're completely surrounded by darkness. You don't know where to go, what direction to go. You don't know how to get home. That's the reality of your situation, and suddenly, somehow, you see a light in the distance. What does that do for you? It gives you hope. It gives you hope because it gives you a direction to follow. It takes your confusion and turns it into clarity. Well, this is what Jesus does. He came in the world as the light of the world to shine light on our darkness, and the light of Jesus gives us hope. And Jesus' ministry was, was built on that, on giving people hope. And we need to learn from that. How, how, would, how would you deal with somebody or address somebody uh, that you knew who was maybe trapped by some kind of addiction? What kind of words would you speak to them? Would you look at them and say something like this? Well, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you're a sinner. Would that be your approach? You know, if you're an alcoholic, you're a sinner. Or would you say... You know, Jesus can change your life from the inside out. And he can give you the hope and the help to overcome that addiction. He can bring peace and purpose and meaning to your life so that you're not looking for it in a bottle any longer. That's the way that we would approach somebody. What, what would you think if you, if you knew you had a coworker? Uh, where you work, or you had a neighbor where you live, and, and, you, and you're a Christian, you found out that they were struggling with some really big issue in their life, and so you approached them, and you offered some kind of help, but they looked at you, they just flat out looked at you right in the face, and they said, you're the last person I would ever turn to for help, and the reason why is, yeah, you're a Christian, but you're just a harsh and judgmental person as a Christian, and you don't make them feel better, you don't give them any light or hope, you just make them feel worse. 
How would we feel as a church if people in our community thought, you know what, that church is the last place I would go to admit my problems or to admit my weaknesses or to admit my failures or to admit my needs. That church is the last place I would go because we just had this reputation of just being harsh and mean and judgmental. Jesus created hope. And maybe this is the most important lesson that we need to embrace. Jesus creates hope for hopeless people because he shines light on darkness. And the third thing is, and Brian, you can come and we'll close with this. The third phrase is changed lives. I love the way this passage ends. It ends uh, with the words that we've read before already in this study, and we'll read them again. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, and here was his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I'm going to just put that message in my own words. You know what Jesus was saying? But it says that Jesus preached this message, said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus preached a message where he basically said, your life can change. Your life can change. Whatever it's like today, it doesn't have to be that way tomorrow. Your life can change. We've talked about the word repent on repeated occasions, the Greek word metanaeo, and literally it means to change your mind. And so when Jesus says repent, he's saying your life can change. Change your life. Your life can change. It's about changing your mind about the condition of your life today. It's about changing your mind about the direction of your life today. It's about changing your mind about who's in control of your life today. Your life can change. You know, I think one of the most significant things that we could ever do as we minister to people, as we reach out to people in a personal way, is sometimes we might just look at somebody we know and say, listen, are you happy and satisfied with your life the way it is right now today? And I got to believe that we all know people who, if they were honest, would say, no, I'm not. I'm not happy living in fear. I'm not happy filled with anxiety. I'm not happy, you fill in the blank, with what I'm dealing with. And then the message is, well, the good news is, because of Jesus, your life can change. That's the great message of hope. Let's pray together this morning.